the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> this is a little unusual. The last time I preached from a pulpit was in September of 2007. I'd been walking on the beach. <clears throat> God made it very clear it was time to leave Grace Episcopal. We're not going anywhere. I just have a bad arm. Anybody remember that? Mm -hmm. How many of you were not here for that? God is good. <laughs> wow. Well, I want to talk to you this morning about this reading from the book of Acts. Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And uh, the big idea is your past is no obstacle to your future in the Lord's work. Your past is no obstacle to your future in the Lord's work. No matter where you've been, what you've done, God can still use you going forward if you come to faith in him and receive his life, his love, and his spirit. And I came across this. <clears throat> Someone wrote, I was weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart when I heard the voice of children from a neighboring house chanting, take up and read, take up and read. I could not remember ever having heard the like. So checking the torrent of my tears, I arose, interpreting it to be none other than a command from God to open the book and to read the first chapter I should find. Eagerly then, I returned to the place where I had laid the volume of the apostle. I seized, opened, and in silence read that section on which my eyes first fell. Not in revelry and drunkenness, not in licentiousness and lewdness, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. No further would I read, nor did I need to. Or instantly, at the end of this sentence, it seemed as if the light of serenity infused my heart and all of the darkness of doubts vanished away. That was written by St. Augustine. St. Augustine was a wonderful father of the church, the Bishop of Hippo, third and fourth, fourth and fifth centuries. And he was born in North Africa and he lived a really grew up just very, very brilliant, but also um, lived a life of sin in every way you can imagine living a life of sin. And uh, he kind of d disappeared into Europe. His mother, Monica, followed him and never stopped praying for her son. And this was his conversion story. Take up and read. If you hear the words, take up and read, they always refer to St. Augustine. It's never too late. God can always turn you around and use you. So aside from li the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I would say Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> The conversion of Paul is probably the most significant event in church history. Without that event, without St. Paul, we would be missing 13 books of the New Testament. Think about that. 13 different books of the New Testament. So who was he? He actually had an amazing pedigree. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee, a strict Jew, born in Tarsus. Asia Minor, and along with Athens and Alexandria, Tarsus, those three were the Harvard, Yale, and Princeton of their day. Very, very at the top of the line. 
He was sent to Jerusalem probably as a young teenager, maybe around the age of 13 or 14, to study with Gamaliel, who was the most respected and revered teacher of the law in those days. He knew Hebrew, he knew Greek, he knew Aramaic, he knew Latin. He was a Roman citizen. He was a member of the Sanhedrin because he said, when they came before us, I would vote to execute them. He felt called by God to eliminate the Christian movement. Um, right after the execution of Stephen, the martyrdom of Stephen, and on that day a great persecution against the, the church in Jerusalem broke out, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Ravaged is a word that was used for a wild boar destroying a vineyard. Totally out of control. This is his attitude toward Christians and people of the way, and any follower of Jesus Christ. Complete, out of his mind, we've got to get rid of you. He said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only shut up many of the saints in prison, by authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often, or even in the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme, and in an enraging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I tried to make them blaspheme. I tried to get them to do things that were wrong. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in every, let's see here. You get the idea. Um, he was a man on a mission. And his mission was to eliminate this movement, get rid of it. So there's no trace of it. It would go no further if it was up to Paul. This is the guy that wrote 13 books in the New Testament. So on the way to Damascus, he's a Pharisee. He's going there to round up people from the synagogue because there was no separation between Christianity and the synagogues in those days. And he would be escorted by a, a, a guard from the temple but he was a Pharisee, so he'd be walking by himself when this thing happened. Jesus not only receives sinners, he pursues them. He goes after them. A number of years ago, I did a wedding. Uh, Mac and Anna Dunwoody's daughter, Krista, married a guy named Mac McGuire. And I did the wedding up in uh, Charleston. This is where I learned to eat grits. E.L. Foster was the mayor of Ocala at the time, a good friend of the Dunwoodies, and they had a, a dinner before the, the wedding. 
night before, and I was kind of going through the line, and Yale was standing there, and uh, he said, have, have you ever tried that? And he's pointing. I said, what is it? He said, shrimp and grits. I said, I don't eat grits. He said, eat it. Just, I, I remember how he said it. Eat it. I went, oh, okay. So I tried it, and everywhere I go, if they have shrimp and grits, I order it. But it's the only kind of grits I eat. So after a while, um, Mac, the young man that married Krista, uh, got cancer. And he was going down to MD Anderson in Houston. And, and the, we were in the Anglican mission at the time, and we had a winter conference in Houston in January. And Anna said, Mac is going to be in Houston in January. Is anybody going to be there? And I said, we're going to be there. So he came, he and his father and this friend of his, who was also under treatment, came to M, uh, the hotel where we were staying, and we had dinner. And then we always, on a Friday night, had a healing service. Chuck Murphy was there. He celebrated. We did a healing service. And I went up with Mac, and we, he was prayed for. And then I walked back to the, where we were sitting, and his friend was standing up, holding onto the chair in front of him. And he was very intense, and he was just shaking his head. And I went, are you all right? And he said, God's been after me for 15 years, and tonight he caught up with me. He went up and got prayed for, and the Lord caught up with him. It was that road to Damascus experience for that young man. Now, wherever they were staying, Mac and his friend here, where they were staying in Houston, uh, it was a house owned by an older woman who just had a house, and she, she put up people who were going to MD Anderson for nothing. Didn't charge him anything. This guy went back. He was a business owner in Charleston. He went back to Charleston, sold his business, moved to Houston, bought a house, and puts people up for nothing that are going to MD Anderson. God's been after me for 15 years, but tonight he caught up with me. He'll catch you. <laughs> so the essence of grace is that it offers it offers a us God's riches at Christ's expense. Paul is receiving the unmerited favor of God. There's nothing that he did to earn it. There's nothing he could do to get it. I love the fact that Jesus says, Saul, Saul. When he uses your name twice, it's, not of a, it's, it's a sign of like comforting. Martha, Martha. It's not Martha, Martha. Or Jerusalem, Jerusalem, his heart is aching for Jerusalem. Simon, Simon, Saul, Saul. Grace changed his life. The direction of his life was changed from Judaism to Christianity. He was committed completely to that way of life. He was an expert. He was going to be the next Gamaliel in a way. And now he's called away from that into something completely different. But what it is, it's really a fulfillment of everything that he has worked for and studied and knows. Just doesn't see it at that time. But that road to Damascus experience got him straight. The devotion of his life was changed from the law to Jesus. He knew the law better than anybody. He 
could recite it to you, for you backwards and forwards. There wasn't anything about the law, the, the slightest nuance that he didn't know. But he didn't know Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, all that knowledge is useless. If you don't know Jesus, it doesn't mean a thing. We all know people that are, could probably recite the catechism from front to back, but don't have a relationship with Christ. And at the end, it means nothing. So he was, the direction of his life was changed from somebody who was immersed in the law to somebody who knew Jesus. I'm not saying the law is not important, but it doesn't get where you, where you need to go. Grace completed his life and God pro provided all he lacked. What did he lack? He lacked religion. He had religion, but he lacked redemption. You know people that have religion, but they don't have faith. They don't have faith. They don't have a relationship with Jesus, but they have religion. They'll go to church every week, they'll check the box. They'll say grace before meals, but there's no relationship. There's, there's no redemptive relationship with God because they haven't been reconciled with the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. I was saying this morning that we look different. We look different on Sunday morning. Lots of people look different on Sunday morning. You know, Father Tommy's up here in his dress. I don't usually look like this. We've got candles and we've got bells and we've got an altar and we have the Eucharist. Then you go someplace else and somebody's up there in a black robe or somebody's up there in a suit. You go someplace and it's skinny jeans and fog machines, who knows. But what unites us all together is Jesus. How you look on Sunday is almost irrelevant to that core fact and value. Who is Jesus in your life, in your ministry? And in this day and age, we've got to stop thinking about what divides us, but what unites us as Christians. This is a day and age when Christians need to unite, stand up, and speak up for the truth. The truth. Amen. I got a hand going back there. That's good. He had service, but he lacked salvation. He had religion versus grace, deeds versus deed, good deeds versus grace through Jesus. There was probably nobody that was doing more for his version of what was a godly life than Paul. But it wasn't going to lead anywhere. It wasn't going to lead anywhere. He had honor, but he lacked hope. And again, probably the next Camilio. He was a rising star. Everybody knew who he was. He was honored among all. And then he takes on this role of persecutor of the church. This is now what defined him, and everybody knew it. And one of the problems he had when he came to faith in Jesus Christ, and he went away for a number of years, and he came back, and he tries to do ministry, is they all know who he was before. 
I love Ananias this morning. God tells Ananias to go lay hands on Paul. And Ananias is like, ah, Lord, I'm not sure you know this guy. Let me, let me fill you in on who he really is. I think God knew who he was. I think Jesus kind of had that down. But nobody could believe it. And it was really interesting getting that ministry off the ground. But then what they knew about him, what they discovered about Paul, was once he had that experience on the Damascus Road, nothing deterred him from the mission. Whether it's, you know, you go to 2 Corinthians 11, it's like shipwrecked three times, flogged, beaten, starved, friends that, you know, turned their backs on me. I, didn't matter. He said, I, I'm, I'm happy in plenty. I'm happy without anything. My circumstances don't make a difference in my life. I know what it's like to be rich. I know what it's like to be poor. But he had Jesus, and that made all the difference. He knew something was missing, missing so he was, in the, he was in the mode of trying harder. We can try all we like, but if it isn't Jesus that we get, it's a, we've missed it. And when he met Jesus, everything changed. If you know Jesus, you may not have much in this world's eyes, but you have hope. And one of the big lies of the enemy is you've lived a life that is not worthy of him. <clears throat> you've lived a life and you've made choices that disqualifies you from being used in the kingdom of God. That's not from God. That's from the pit of hell. If you want to be used, if you come to faith in Christ, God can use you. <clears throat> Ian Thomas was a wonderful man of God. And he put it like this. He is speaking for Saul. And I'll leave you with this. When, as Saul of Tarsus, I made my own independent evaluation of this man called Jesus of Nazareth, I investigated into his life to see if this leader of the Nazarene cult was worth following or not. I made my own independent evaluation of what he was, what he was worth. I was not unfair. I was not unkind. I applied to him all the normal, natural standards by which any life is evaluated. I used the normal standards for determining the worth of any individual at any time. I looked first into his ancestry and discovered he was a, there was a cloud over his birth right from the start. As I investigated it, it became quite clear that he was the illegitimate son of a faithless woman who had been taken in by a, a, a kind-hearted carpenter and raised as his own son. But he was an outcast from the beginning. And socially, he was worth absolutely nothing. I investigated his professional standing, and I discovered that he was born of peasant stock and had attended no schools. He was raised as a simple carpenter in a village of no standing uh, in Israel, and professionally, he was worth absolutely nothing. As Saul of Tarsus, I investigated his theological and ecclesiastical background. Matthew. I found that he is that he sat at nobody's feet, he had been to no seminary, he had no ecclesiastical or theological training. In fact, he was repudiated by all the ecclesiastical authorities of his day. He was nothing but an incorrigible street preacher and a tub-thumping rabble-rouser. 
And as far as his professional, ecclesiastical, and theological standing was concerned, he was worth absolutely nothing. Furthermore, I looked into his standing financially. I found he had no bank account, that he was born in a cave and laid in a borrowed manger, and that he lived in other people's homes. He was an incorrigible scrounger. He was always borrowing things. He borrowed money to pay his taxes. He borrowed his clothes from other people. He rode around on a borrowed donkey. He died in a borrowed cross and was buried in a borrowed tomb. Financially, from the standpoint of the accommodation, accumulation of this world's goods, he was worth absolutely nothing. So as I investigated and applied this to him, as applied to him all the normal standards by which any life is evaluated, I discovered that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was not worth following. He was worth nothing. But on the Damascus Road, something happened. There, in the blinding flash of a moment, I looked into the face of a man, and I saw God. I discovered that he whom I thought to be worth nothing was the Lord of everything, and he was the God of glory, that everything that is made is upheld by the word of his power, that he is behind all things, and he is the very imprint of the image of God. There I found that he whom I thought to be nothing was everything, and I, whom I thought to be everything, was nothing. In that moment, I came to a tremendous reversal of all the values of my life. Later, I learned that I, who was nothing, could be filled with him who was everything, and that would make my life something. It's never too late to be used by God.